Welcome to another episode of Medusa Muses, a mostly scripted podcast where I muse about various topics ranging from politics and religion to social media and video games. Sorry about the sudden and long hiatus, but I'm back. Now let's talk about police abolition and community defense. This past April, George Floyd's murderer was found guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. It was an unexpected outcome as the United States has a long history of ignoring crimes committed against Black folks, especially when they've been brutalized or murdered by police. However, there is no doubt that this outcome was influenced by the people protesting out in the streets, promising no peace if justice wasn't delivered. I say this because following his conviction, some states started writing bills that would include legislation to make it illegal to photograph or film police who famously have faulty body cams that when they do manage to record footage, it's lost or corrupted. But this shouldn't come as too much of a surprise as there are 12 states where it's already legally precarious to film police, which only proves that justice will not be done without pressure from the people to make the system work to our benefit. Because contrary to what people like Nancy Pelosi think, black people are human beings, not sacrificial lambs for the enlightenment of the American empire. In general, it's always been the people's collective power that has frightened our government and made it police us so heavily. It's why it was essential for the government to create and maintain the racial binary of us versus them, and then to add on various others who can be labeled, dehumanized, and subjugated. The police have always been the enforcers of this binary. They uphold the will of the haves and beat the shit out of the have-nots who dare to challenge this power structure. They're not there to protect and serve you. Ooh, not so fun fact. Protect and serve is not a police oath that they take. It was a motto adopted by the LAPD. Officially, it was chosen during a raffle and was written by Joseph Dorabek. Though I found an article that alleges it was thought up by his daughter and submitted under his name. Eventually, other police forces would adopt it, leading to a lot of propaganda that featured these words on police cars. The truth is that Police are neither here to protect nor serve the common person. Firstly, police are not obligated to serve you. A policeman can be standing on a street corner staring into space. If you run up to him and inform him that you've been robbed and need help, he can tell you no and continue staring into space. Worse, police don't prevent crime. They show up after the fact and usually they're the ones bringing the violence. There's been multiple cases where cops have showed up to non-lethal or harmless situations, guns blazing, and ended up murdering or maiming black and brown people who were not even involved in the situation or the victims who called the police. After all, their origins are as tax collectors and slave catchers. Unless you're considered property, they don't really keep you safe, and even if you are property, they just make sure you're mostly alive. To this day, they still perform both functions, 
Instead of collecting taxes for the government, they are paid with our tax dollars. And instead of capturing slaves, they heavily police low-income areas, arrest people who live there, and send them off to prison where they will work for cents a day and must pay to survive in privately owned prisons or force to risk their lives to fight fires. In this way, police certainly protect and serve the interests of private individuals within the system that keeps the police flush with work and docile with propaganda that they are the peacekeepers, or as famously said in many a propaganda film, the law. So the question is, do we need the police? We've already established that police primarily work to protect the interests of the state and those who possess the most capital. We've debunked the myth that the police prevent crime. But do we need police to keep our communities safe? It's true that policing low-income neighborhoods does harm to the community, but couldn't we just limit their policing and implement reformations to make them better for the community? The answer to these questions is very nuanced, no. Over-policing has always been a problem in poor black and brown communities. It's never been a secret, it's just that no one likes to talk about it. Instead, people like to take statistics out of context and make racist correlations between crime and race. The truth is that our communities are just desperate. We tend to work the jobs available to us, which are typically minimum wage jobs or taxing physical labor jobs. Not everyone can work these jobs and with the way that redlining has put a lot of black and brown public schools at a disadvantage with our property taxes being low, getting an education is a mountain that many black people just can't climb to get a better life. As a result, some of us turn to less than legal means of support for our families or use these same means to supplement our minimum wage jobs. Cops may not understand the nuances of poverty, but they know that crime happens in poor neighborhoods and takes advantage of this phenomenon to make their quotas. And yes, this is real. Police are incentivized to arrest, to arrest X amount of people each week. Because of this, they must predict where crime will take place so they can show up to interrupt it or investigate so they can make arrests. This resulted in cops harassing repeat offenders and even framing people just to make quotas. And even if we were to remove the quotas tomorrow, it wouldn't change the culture that has already been cultivated by the police stations. Police don't take any reform seriously. A Medium article by an ex-cop going by the alias Officer Acab explains how all cops are indeed bastards, and while some may want to do the right thing, and even did so from time to time, they still hassled other people and would do all sorts of things to make their quotas. This person also shares their experience about how they cheated their racial sensitivity training and laughed at the whole requirement. So there is no limiting policing. Even if we told them that they couldn't police these communities that much or they didn't have a quota, they'd still settle into old habits and continue to destabilize our communities. But what about systematic reforms? I know that another big thing that a lot of people demand is that we reform the police system since it's so corrupt. They typically ask, why haven't we reformed the police yet? Well, we have. People have been trying to implement police reform for over 60 years now. 
multiple times there would be restrictions put on police to prevent them from brutalizing and killing people. The problem is that the police don't listen and they have the culture of the blue shield to protect one another from consequences. From my understanding, which isn't fact but a memory, there's already a ban on chokeholds in Minnesota when George Floyd was murdered by a knee to his neck. These bans don't really stop police from doing these actions. They just get in trouble if they get caught, and there's no real consequence. And you can try to use George Floyd as an example of a consequence for their actions, but it took a lot of protesting and marching to get that guilty verdict, and the cop was caught in broad daylight on camera killing a man. But I haven't answered fully whether we need police. If the modicum of safety they provide for some folks is worth more than the harm they cause. The short answer is no. They are not worth it. The nuanced answer is that the harm they do is just too irreparable. People tend to forget just how much of a minority black people are in the United States. We only make up about 14% of the US population and are segregated to small impoverished communities where most people never move farther than a couple blocks or across town from their parents' home. All the over-policing, brutality, and murder that the police do affects our communities in deep ways. The father shortage that conservatives love to point to as the reason for black culture being so toxic is an issue that began during slavery times with male slaves being sold so often. It later became the police stealing young men from our communities to fill their quotas and become wage slaves for the private prisons. It's true that these men are breaking the law, but often the law is unjust. And each theft of our people ripples and turns into tsunamis throughout our communities. Imagine living in a community where one week your boyfriend is murdered by police and a year later, a boy you taught in school was murdered by police. Courtney Ross, George Floyd's girlfriend, doesn't have to imagine this. She lived it and will likely keep living it so long as she lives in a black community where police continue to rip apart families and destabilize communities. There you have it, the nuanced answer I promised. Police do more harm than good, and the good isn't even their purpose. We don't need them, and many of them need to be tried for the crimes they committed against our communities. That's why we need to abolish these thugs with badges and start investing in community defense. And after a word from this sponsor, I'll explain more about what community defense is and how it will keep our communities safer while bringing us together. Did you know that this podcast is supported by monthly donations on Patreon? These kind folks receive early access to new episodes and access to my private community on Discord. If you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash and select a tier that's affordable to you. Community Defense is a group of actions that a community takes to combat poverty, addiction, and police authority in our neighborhoods. It is the way that we the people, as neighbors and community residents, can take back power and have some hope for our futures again. Specifically, it is creating a community assembly where neighbors can express their material, emotional, or mental troubles and the neighborhood collectively helps each other for the betterment of the community. From there, it's a matter of collectively working together to end poverty and addiction while kicking out the police. After all, the police's only excuse to be in our communities is to stop crime. 
But if we end the crimes ourselves, then they can't continue their reign of tyranny. As discussed earlier, crime is the result of desperate people doing desperate things. I would like to add that addiction is the abuse of drugs to flee a trauma or to chase a paradise. Much like crime, it's a side effect of trauma and poverty. Therefore, it's a community issue that shouldn't be treated as a crime, but a tragedy to be reviewed and troubleshot. During a community assembly, neighbors can vote to open a general practice and mental clinic and look for trustworthy community members who may have degree or are working on a degree who can work there. And should there be no one within the neighborhood, the assembly, everyone in the neighborhood could look for doctors, nurses, and other staff outside of the community to work in the clinic and become part of the community. Another aspect of community defense is also assuring that no person goes hungry. By opening a food kitchen where people without the means to cook and keep food can have a nutritious meal, and a food pantry to supplement poorer families that may not have food in their cupboards. In addition to that, communities can open apartment shelters that work as temporary shelter to escape bad situations or to get back on your feet. These shelters would come part and parcel with a community farm or garden where people who cannot work in certain jobs can give back to the community by helping this way or by learning how to fix things in the shelter. All these actions take the desperation out of people, makes the community more self-sufficient, and pushes outside influences out of our communities. By strengthening, our, by strengthening the community, poor black workers regain some power in the workforce. They can go on strike safely knowing that the community has their back during their struggle. The working person is empowered when their needs are met, which is why they keep us alienated and over-policed. And this is not a theory. Repeatedly, history has shown us that black people discover this fact, follow through, and then the police invade our spaces to take our power. One example I think many people will be most familiar with is that of the Black Panthers. They're well known for their breakfast, breakfast program where they fed children as well as did armed patrols of their neighborhoods where they would observe and intimidate police into leaving black folks alone. It's this type of work that I believe is essential to community defense. I also believe that it's important to avoid the pitfalls they succumb to. At the time, there were people outside of the Panthers making valid critiques about their oversights and limitations. These individuals were black anarchists and their main gripes about the Panthers was the distribution of power within the organization, as well as the links to which the BPP alienated themselves from the community. Their first pitfall as an organization was that Panthers had to be Panthers full-time as a no-job or security net. Because of this, many people who might have been able to support them or even help them close ranks when police began infiltrating might have been mitigated. Worse, each BPP cell had an established hierarchy that wasn't chosen democratically and women, despite being some of the most outspoken and passionate members, weren't allowed leading positions. Though this was not too surprising considering the sexism and queerphobia that was rampant in the organization, I'm not saying that we should have the Black Panthers again, but we do need a radical community defense group and taking the blueprint from an established group who did a lot of good for the black community and recognizing where they went wrong is a good way to start on. So, let's discuss. How should we go about creating our own community defense groups? 
More specifically, how can one person go about starting a community assembly? It's not possible to start one by yourself. You will start out alone, but you will need to start looking for accomplices immediately. Start with your friends in the neighborhood or your next door neighbor. Learn more about their needs and concerns for the community. Listen and take notes, because if you notice a pattern forming from neighbor to neighbor, then you've found a community-wide issue that needs to be addressed. From there, it's a matter of researching more information about how to solve this problem or mitigate it. This is when you can suggest the community assembly and invite your neighbors to discuss this problem in a meeting of neighbors. From there, it's a matter of building rapport with your community. However, before you suggest this assembly, make sure you've considered what the structure looks like and that it's democratic with no one figurehead. Instead, stress the importance of not following any one person's lead, but following directives that benefit the community. Suggest some rules for the assembly that will protect the democracy of the assembly, while also streamlining the process. But the most important takeaway is to unite the community through shared struggle and success. Don't expect this to happen overnight. You will encounter people who don't share your beliefs. It's okay. For people with harmful beliefs, it's important to push back against those beliefs and plant seeds of change, but reduce your interaction with them and make sure that the community is aware of the ripples of harm the person does. Hopefully, through unity and improved conditions, some aspects of bigoted ideas formed through alienation can be eliminated, allowing for individual people to heal and for the neighborhood to become safer. So there's much more to community defense than I've outlined here. I suggest doing research and altering your plan of action based on what will work for your situation in your neighborhood. The most important thing is to unite your neighborhood so that you can work together to improve your living conditions and get used to have using your collective power. It'll be useful in any endeavor where the community has to weather natural or man-made disasters ranging from hurricanes to lying politicians. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please become a patron on my Patreon or make a one-time donation on Coffee. I hope to see you next time. Until then, keep it cozy.